for your consideration, the 1994 movie Airheads is actually an educational film. It taught us that drummers can actually score with the ladies, hot sauce can be weaponized, and that all you need is a good song and a bad plan to make your dreams come true. You know, for an educational movie, Airheads? It's not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks at A, grades, and B, movies. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're ready for a doozy because we are talking 1994's Airheads. And joining me today is my wife, Carrie, who has returned from her exile after saying that she preferred Masters of the Universe over Star Wars. Carrie, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. I am doing so well, and I am so super stoked to talk about this movie. Rock on! Now, okay, I have to point out, okay, avid listener Anthony, also known as Monkey Noodles out there, almost lost his ish when he heard the, the, the whole you like Masters of the Universe over Star Wars thing. But he says you're cool, so it's okay. So you're allowed to come back. So first Aww, of all, thank you, th- thank you, thank you, Monkey Noodles, for actually listening in and uh, and all that. So we allowed Carrie to come back because she is pretty damn awesome. I may be biased, but I don't care. Let's see if I can break the internet again. <laughs> That's my goal. Well, you're the one who picked Airheads. So explain to us why you picked this movie. Why would I not? I love this movie. I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, there is nothing that I don't love about it, and there's so much I want to say, but let's get started. Okay, so before we get started, you know what we have to do? It's it's time. So I'm going to hand the microphone over to you, Carrie, and I want you to take your script there and trailerize it. Three aspiring rock musicians determined to have their band's demo tape played on the air sneak into a Los Angeles radio station. But when that doesn't work, all hell breaks loose. The amps are on, but nobody's home, and their only defense may be that the music made them do it. Blame it all on the love of rock and roll. Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler star in Airheads, Rated PG-13. Okay, first of all, it's an Adam Sandler movie and rated PG-13, so we're already going to have to take a stretch as to what's not bad because of that. Admittedly, Adam Sandler has, as of late, been a little bit more than PG-13, but we'll let him go because this is 1994. So let's kind of go through the list of who's in this movie just to start with. We mentioned... Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler is your band. They are the Lone Rangers. Um, but the list of people, the notable people in this movie is insane. Let me run just a quick rundown of the list here. Michael Richards, so Kramer, right? Chris Farley, Michael McKean, Judd Nelson, Ernie Hudson, Joe Montaigne, Reg E. Cathy, a very young and very blonde David Arquette, Harold Ramis, like the list. The list is insane in this movie. Now, here's the interesting thing, though, is that when you take a look at who could have starred in it, it would have been a very different movie. Okay, so according to IMDb, okay, the role of Chaz Brendan Fraser was supposed to be played by John Cusack, which I don't know. I just can't picture John Cusack in this role. No, no, no. I mean, he was great in High Fidelity. You know, you think about like late 80s, early 90s films that John Cusack could do no wrong, but I think he would have done wrong in this role. And then there was Kayla uh, as played by Amy Locaine, but it was apparently was supposed to be played by Christina Applegate. And that one actually made sense to me. Totally. However, this is not the first time that these two have hooked up. Brendan Fraser and Amy Locaine, yeah. Right. In the 1992 School Ties, they were a couple as well. Very different movie, by the way. School Ties and Eretz, two way, way different movies. I can only hope she wasn't that batshit crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, Christina Applegate in that role would, would have been phenomenal, but... To the same token as well, it almost would have been the same role as as 
you know, unmarried with children. So maybe it's a good thing she didn't go because it'd be a little bit typecast. But yeah, batshit crazy, I think, is the gentlest way of describing. Yeah, that would have been a trip to the principal's office for sure. (laughs) Now, it was directed by Michael Lehman. I hope I pronounced that right, Michael Lehman. And if the name sounds familiar as far as directors go, that's because he also directed uh, Hudson Hawk, which starred Bruce Willis, 40 Days and 40 Nights, and Heather's. So if you, because I know you like your Christian Slater movies, so Heather's is on that list, but it was almost, almost directed by Alexander Rockwell. You'll know him best because he was the guy that directed the, the wrong man part of Four Rooms. Right. But as well, you know, what's really, really cool about um, Michael Lehman is that um, in 1994, he was also slated to have directed um, Ed Wood, uh, Johnny Depp's Ed Wood. And he had passed that off to Tim Burton so he could stay with the Airheads project. Now, to put that into perspective... He actually passed up a movie that had like a 92% tomato meter rating, um, an 88% audience score for this wonderful film that we're about to dive deep into. You know what's funny, though? And maybe it's just me. You know, we we talked about how it was probably better for Christina Applegate to not take this role so it's not typecasting. I don't know if Ed Wood would have been as good as it was or well-received as it was, if Michael Lehman took that directing job to the same token as well, let's reverse it. Tim Burton would have fucked this movie up so bad. If Tim Burton Ooh. made Airheads, I don't think we'd be sitting here saying, no, Airheads is not that bad because Airheads is a good movie. And I think it's better handled by a Michael Lehman. Ed Wood needed to be directed by Tim Burton. So, you know, as as the, the Hollywood gods had it, each movie got the director I think it probably needed. Um, one of the cool things about this film is where it was filmed. Not just L.A., but it was filmed at Fox Plaza. You know, and... You know, I almost, I'm, I'm fighting back my wanting to- Nakatomi Plaza. Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> now, now, not the actual building that was Nakatomi Plaza, but like there's a little building kind of like across the parking lot from the, Naki, the quote unquote Nakatomi Plaza. And that's where that was. So, you know, if you're having a sense of wanting to scream out, nine, nine, because of course, you know, um, you know, they just love that freaking movie. Um, yes, it was filmed at Fox Plaza, which is also known as the Nakatomi Tower. In the box office- it grossed just over $5 million at the box office, um, which, of course, in 1994, not that bad. Um, but let, let's put it into perspective here. When it debuted, okay, on August 5th, 1994, it debuted at number 10, made $1.9 million. Respectable debut at number 10. It was not going to knock off the, the other big debut that, that weekend, which was Clear and Present Danger. That was the Tom Clancy series. Um, that's when Harrison Ford was still part of Clear and Present Danger. Um, so that debuted at number one, and that made um, $20 million. But at number four on the box office, debuting that weekend, was The Little Rascals. If you remember, like they, they basically they brought all these kids together and they made The Little Rascals movie. That made $10 million, debuting at number four. So... You know, not even the the only other debuting movie, and it slipped in at number ten. But for perspective, okay, we're gonna put Clear and Present Danger aside because that is what it is, and it's an entirely different genre of film. Currently, on Rotten Tomatoes, Airheads has a Rotten Tomato score of twenty three percent tomato meter and a fifty percent audience score. So respectable as far as an audience score, but a crappy tomato meter. But since we mentioned The Little Rascals, I took a look. It also has a 23% tomato meter, but a 70% audience score. So, so the, the, the movie going public liked Little Rascals more than it liked Airheads. So I'm going to put it to you because I know you've seen both. And it's probably been a while since we've watched Little Rascals. What's better? Because they both start off at the same tomato meter starting point at 23%. Who got it right? Okay. I don't think that's a fair question. I think you're talking about 
apples to oranges and two completely different audience. I mean, Little Rascals, right, is like a family-friendly movie you can take the kids to. Um, I will say, I think the Little Rascals were smarter than Adam Sandler's character. (laughs) (laughs) Although Pip might have fit right in with the Rascals. I'm not quite sure. You know what? I think um, Airheads has a niche audience. And I think that you have to know that going into it. Like, they had to know making this film that, you know, even when you look at music genres, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Airheads and the whole, um, in this case, it was L.A. based, uh, an L.A. based uh, band, LA radio based station. as Seattle is exploding. But you have to absolutely love the little, like, nod to the Seattle music scene at the time where, where Brendan Fraser's character, um, you know, had said, you actually listen to that Seattle bullshit? Like, Which, for the record, Seattle was not bullshit. There were there were there were some bands that I would I could pass on from Seattle, but I mean, like any scene. I mean, you want to take a look at the Sunset Strip. There were bands we would definitely pass on from there, but there's also bands you also couldn't live without. But it is very much a movie of the time. Little Rascals is a movie of another time. Um, it is. You're right. It's two very different movies. But let's take a look at Airheads, though. Twenty three percent tomato meter, fifty percent audience score. To you, who's right? Oh my God. Um, I think absolutely the audience um, has has spoken. And like I said, it's a niche audience. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, um, I mean, we've gone to music festivals. Mm-hmm. Like, like the characters in this movie are legit. They are pretty much, you know, what you would think expect to who you would expect to meet at a music festival and and that's the thing like i'm in a band you've known bands like we know these people we and do know these it. people i love it so much like um the the scene in the movie i don't know if i can you know fast forward to this but the scene in the movie where um the radio dj ian gives uh brendan Fraser's character the mic and he's like so you know what is it that you have to say if you want to be heard? This is your chance. Here is your opportunity. These are your, this is your forum. This is, you know, here's the mic. Speak to your people. The audience is listening and he's like, well, what do you want to say? And the answer was, I just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So now we're listening. What What do you have to say that you, what you want to share? I, I just, I want, I want to be heard. <laughs> okay so moving on from that and then his answer was just like rock on and it's like rock and roll rock and roll oh my god so Aussie so <laughs> yeah, you know what I think that was actually like it was it was so perfect in that um when you look at you know the grunge era and um arguably you know whether it's goth or whatever the era of of music and time is like it's it's representative of the disenfranchised youth who just want to be heard and they want people to understand them but when given the the you know platform to share their message it's like i just want to be heard (laughs) (laughs) when given the mic actually say something um okay so let's Let's get into the breakdown here. Okay, before we before we spoil too much, let's let's start with the acting. So I'm gonna hand the microphone over to you on this one here so you can be heard. Um, who to you was good acting in Airheads? Oh, I just want to be heard. <laughs> um Rock and Roll. Oh my god. Okay. Where to begin? Where to begin? Chris Farley as <laughs> as the beat cop that um, very much Chris gets Farley. thrown <laughs> on on the little side mission to track down uh, Brendan Fraser's character, uh, his, his girlfriend, sorry, um, Kayla. And uh, the whole idea was to track down the only second recording of this song. Um, now, arguably, you would tend to think that there's three guys in the band. They should have each had a copy. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so it was it was after uh, the the master tape 
the real to real, the no real less. to real gets um, gets damaged. It, you know, the search begins for the cassette tape of the song, and so Chris Farley um, is sent into a club. Um, I can't remember exactly if that's where that's where White Zombie is playing yeah, at that, the whiskey. That's at the whiskey a go go. Okay, so. He gets sent in, um, definitely out of his league, and uh, you know has to um, uh, take Kayla in to, uh, to to help her find this cassette. Um, anyway, absolutely friggin' perfect. It was, you know, I, I from- will say it, 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 it's classic Chris Farley, but also a little bit more pulled back Chris Farley. It's almost like. And, you know, I'm going to mention this a little bit later about Adam Sandler, but I think Michael Lehman as a director did a very good job of letting them be themselves without being caricatures of themselves. It wasn't Chris Farley trying to be Chris Farley. It was just Chris Farley doing his best cop with a whole lot of, you know, Farleyisms in it. Was that maybe, though, the time that the movie came out before his character as Chris Farley from SNL before it was really established. You can take a look at Michael Richards in very much his spaghetti man best flopping around and all that. You, you think about Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld is already big at this point because you know, it, it's, it started in 1989. So we're five years into Kramer already. So you Kramer is what you want him to be. But again, it wasn't like over the top Kramer. It wasn't it wasn't stuttering manic Kramer. It was Michael Richards being a very physical comedian, perfect for that role. Adam Sandler had his little Sandlerisms coming out of this, but it was a way more subdued, pulled back, reined in, not wedding singer. Not wedding singer Adam Sandler, because let's be honest, Pip is a moron. No, but Adam Sandler put on this voice. He changed his entire voice and mannerism for this role. The thing he was almost overdone. It was Billy Madison-esque, right? It's, we know Adam Sandler can do comedic well when being directed by a what by a good director the wedding singer was perfect example adam sandler in the wedding singer was good he was very good and he was perfect for that role you know but then you had you know happy gilmore came out and then you had billy madison and it's almost like sandler's characters got dumber and dumber and dumber but most of those were in movies that he co-wrote co-produced like like he was very heavily involved in the creation of those characters and they felt like you know saturday night live sketches that went on 90 minutes too long um with pip in this movie you still saw the sandlerisms you know the you know the kooky dance and like the, the the almost withdrawn quiet someone who's been you know beaten by way too many drumsticks kind of thing through the head but it wasn't over the top. You know, Adam Sandler didn't have that over the top performance because I think he knew. I think he knew and I think the director probably knew that if you let guys like Farley, Sandler and Richards go crazy, then you've lost the film and you've you've taken the focus away from the central storyline. So that that's a good point for Michael Lehman. I think though when you look at the three members of the band, when you look at Chaz, Brendan Fraser's um, character, Steve Buscemi as Rex and Pip being his his brother. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Steve Buscemi, like, was just, he, he was, like, crazy. Like, he was, he was that, um, I don't know, like, that, almost like a caged animal just waiting to be set free. Well, he's a bassist. Like, and (laughs) no, but, um, bassists are nuts. (laughs) You know, like you kind of think that when you look at the dynamic of the three of them, you've got Buscemi, who again is just like certifiable. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Pip who, you know, if, if 
that's the dynamic in their brothers, right? That scene where um, where Rex is like trying to to I don't know assert Pip and and you know he gives him the the gun and he's you know practicing how he's going to take down the hostage or talk to the hostages. It's like it's just that wonderful balance mm-hmm. and i think that adam sandler as pip played it really well i i will give it though that um had sandler stayed in that you know trying to assert himself mood it would have gone straight down sandler road and billy madison way and that that would not have been good because again this the story is the key to this and that's what mattered the most um i will agree I'll agree with you wholeheartedly that Frazier and and Buscemi were really, really good in this. The the two of them together, I mean, I could see the three of them in a band. I really could. And I'm almost glad, we'll get, we'll get to that in a second though, but I could easily see the three of these guys playing these, you know, crappy little shithole clubs trying to get their music heard. Um, the the three of them made sense together as a band. The three of them made sense together, and I love at the end when um they were finally like on a big stage and in front of the audience, and Sandler was the only one dressed up as a Lone Ranger. Like he had the costume, and it was almost kind of perfect for his character. <laughs> you know, everyone else has like the the black. T-shirt, band T-shirt, ripped jeans look, the long hair. The rock and roll um, uniform. Rock and roll uniform. And he, he shows up in a cape and a, and a, and a Zorro mask. Like, it's absolutely <laughs> perfect. Well, drummers are a special breed. We know this. <laughs> we know this to be true. Um, Michael McKean as, you know, the, the radio executive kind of thing. First of all, Michael McKean in anything, sign me up. You know, I love Spinal Tap. I think he was great in Spinal Tap. I think he's great in this. By the way, I, I now want a Lone Ranger's uh, Spinal Tap tour. We need that to happen. Um, <laughs> but yes, Michael McKean just brought that level of he's playing the character that you're supposed to hate. He's playing the character that's the authority figure. And he played it to perfection. Smarmy enough sleazy enough like but not not overtly again i always i always think i prefer when they're not overt right he was he was right in the pocket he was absolutely right in the pocket. he's going to do what he needs to do he's going to walk over what he needs to walk over he's going to do it for himself he doesn't give a damn about anybody else in the room or in the world so long as he comes out on top michael michael mckean made that character hateable which is hilarious when you think about how lovable of an actor michael mckean is absolutely and you know what i really loved was um when you think about it being from spinal tap and 11 being one more than 10 Mm, yes right noise being a real factor i love the the quote um that ian the uh radio dj said if it's too loud you are too old oh god yes and you know, and that was directed right at Milo. Um, I, I do Michael McKean's character. I do wonder though, because you have Michael McKean from Spinal Tap. If Adam Sandler had any worries about spontaneously combusting or somehow meeting some fate, because we oh, all know spi- Spinal Tap <laughs> drummers don't fare well. They don't. They have a habit of dying. Uh, so the fact that Pip made it through the the, the whole movie alive. Yeah, bravo to him. Um, <laughs> I, I also want to point out Joe, Joe Montaigne, Ian, the DJ. Um, I know you like WKRP. I love WKRP. Uh, news radio is one of my favorite sitcoms of all time. There are, there's something about the role of a radio DJ in a movie that I've always found fascinating. Maybe because, you know, working in radio would be cool. It would be fun. Montaigne plays this role well because, you know, he is literally, 
he's still living the rock lifestyle, but he's also kind of tired of listening to the same new crappy bands that are coming out and they're only getting deals because of X, Y, and Z kind of thing. He's like that classic rock DJ guy who just wants to be inspired by the music that he's hearing and he's not inspired by it. He's, he's all out of the fucks to give. He's completely zero fucks left to give. Until he turns that moment when he turns and it was almost, I don't know if it was Stockholm syndrome or (laughs) maybe a little bit. Yeah. He literally, as the movie goes on and he kind of, he gets them. He gets where they're coming from. Damn the man attitude that a rock DJ is supposed to have. And finally this band comes in and they're very much damn the man with their, with their, what he thinks at the time are real Uzis and you know, all they want to do is be heard. All they want to do is have their music heard and they don't give a shit about how it's being heard for someone who, you know, you have to think that Ian, the character as a DJ, you know, was probably DJing through the times of, of Zeppelin and Sabbath. He, he, plays this like a DJ who's been through the wild days, like like the crazy Van Halen days, the Motley Crue days, right? Especially in LA, right? You have to think of the, this guy, you know, was a DJ and dealing with bands like crew, you know, through, through like the crazy show to the devil theater of paying girls, girls, girls days, anything coming out that's, that, that's, that reeks a corporate is going to like turn his nose up. And here's a band that are taking matters into their own hands. They're literally, you know, flipping middle fingers and Uzis at the man who probably, you know, Ian, the character hates him anyways. So it's like, all right, you're going to piss him off. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sit here, grab my popcorn and let it happen. And that's pretty much it. As soon as he flicks it on the air and starts asking the questions, that's literally the almost metaphorical all right popcorn's ready to go let's let's see what happens well let's be honest a real catalyst for his change in attitude um towards the lone rangers because at first he was he he was pretty condescending about their name the Mm -hmm. lone rangers and there's three of them (laughs) um which was you know quite a funny scene but um as the minute he finds out that kp KPPX, um, which is the rebel radio station that he's working for, um, he learns that there's a pending format change, um, that they're rock. going to go uh, to the easy listening. Easy listening. When everyone sounds like this, and you're about to listen to the most mellow music of all time, it's Kenny G 24 7. Right? But the cool thing about life imitating art is that the same scenario actually did happen Mm -hmm. in reality um, in L.A. actually. uh, KNAC 105.5, six months later from the release of this movie, changed formats, went from, you know, a heavy music station to, um, I believe it was like a... um, I don't know. When you listen to a station, and, and that's got to be tough. Like for, this is a thing. Radio stations change format, not regularly, but often enough that, you know, DJs need to be flexible. DJs, you know, I, I, I'm going to flash back to WKRP, you know, and Johnny Fever's mug that had all of his, you know, fake DJ last names, you know, my Johnny Sunshine now, my Johnny Nevada, like, and then uh, Johnny, Johnny Fever, right? Like <laughs> you have, DJs have to be able to pivot on a dime, you know, when these things happen because they get pigeonholed. They, they get, they get associated with the music that they DJ if they've done it for a long time. So, you know, if they're going to go from, you know, hard rock alternative rebel radio to Kenny G 24 seven, you know, you're not going to want to listen to someone who just told you that they were going to play music, by the guy who bit a bat, you know, the head off a bat to now we're going to play, you know, the, the pan flute of Zamfir. No, <laughs> you, you can't listeners won't, make that leap because it's going to be new new listeners coming in which by the way if you ever want to have fun go from one day to the other and just see like the the whiplash of people 
listeners listening to a station that just went through a a, a format change. It's it's fascinating. <laughs> um, also, I freaking love Ernie Hudson. I don't care what you put him in. Ernie Hudson is is just always a, a treat. Now, Ernie Hudson played O'Malley, the the cop that was kind of heading the point of you know the. If Ernie Hudson sounds familiar, yes, I'm talking Ghostbusters guy. I'm talking Winston Zedmore here. Um, you put Ernie Hudson in a cop uniform, and you just all of a sudden create this level of authority. Um, you know, and if Ghostbusters wasn't your bag, you remember him as the as the cop that would deal with Brandon Lee in The Crow. Now, as I'm going through his IMDb, and I'm like, okay, he played cop here. And he played a cop here. And he played. I went through his list. And by the way, Ernie Hudson's filmography is huge. So I did a brief, very non scientific count of how many times Ernie Hudson has portrayed a law enforcement individual. And I'm counting detectives, I'm counting cops, I'm talking, you know, FBI, judges. I left all the army references out. So cops. Do you judges, count Ghostbusters, Winston. No, that wasn't a cop, though. I'm, t- I'm talking. No, but he's busting up ghosts. Oh, okay, that's great. If you're a ghost, then yeah. But no, I just went through ghost police. And if I saw, <laughs> <laughs> which ghost cops, no one's going to see that movie. Ghostbusters, hell's yes. But no, just went through the list of his of his roles um, and counted the number of law enforcement individuals thirty five times. 35 times Ernie Hudson has been the strong arm of the law. So, right? Wow, he's been in that many movies. You should see his filmography. It's huge. 35 times. And again, I'm not even counting army service roles here. 35 times to my count that Ernie Hudson has played law enforcement. So if you're putting a cop in a role, you really can't go wrong with Ernie Hudson. But the thing about him is, is that his voice, his screen presence, his his demeanor, it's not the crazy cop. All right. It's not the cop that's going to like, you know, take you out at the knees and, you know, and, and leave you to, you know, to die in the alley. Ernie Hudson brings this calm, stable the cop that wants to defuse the situation, make sure no one gets hurt. He brought so much heart to this role. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like when they they called in, um, was it? I guess the FBI, the SWAT or the, whatever. Yeah, yeah, the SWAT team. Like, I felt bad for him. I was like, no, he's got this. And you know, considering that you know the other side of it, that these three guys are literally, you know, packing hot sauce in their <laughs> toy. <laughs> machine guns um you know you, you feel you feel totally bad you're like no he has control of the situation they're only messing things up although you gotta love that nice little connection there with the pool guy and mm-hmm. Pip. that was definitely a motivator to uh <laughs> to take them down and make things worse but yeah ernie hudson's always a, a gem on so screen good. so like you put him in the role i'm i'm pretty much all signed up now have you got anyone else on your acting list well i just wanted to point out the matchup the two ghostbusters you failed yes. to mention harold ramus that yeah egon um was was in this movie so briefly and it was almost like you're watching it and then he just kind of shows up and starts banging on the door and you're like who the fuck is this guy i will because we're talking acting i want to you know and the next part is talking about script and plot i want to bring up the script part Okay, because, you know, Harold Ramis, Egon, right, he played a big role in one of my my favorite script moments of the thing is when he he gets there and they start giving him the quiz to see if he's a cop, right? Um, You know, the the first question is like, yo, whose side did you take, Van Halen or Van Hagar, right? This is, that that's one of those real, real sticking point questions for music fans. Seriously. You know anyone who who's into rock music, and you just sit there and go, "Okay, Van Halen or Van Hagar, right?" That that just tells you right then and there who that person is. Which, for the record, and I'm going to go on record as saying this, I'm pro Van Hagar. I I fully admit I 
thought that Van Halen was, you know, as a band, better musically and songwriting wise with Sammy Hagar in the band. Does that make me, and that's the funny thing too, is, you know, Harold Ramis' response eventually is, oh, Van Halen, he's a cop. <laughs> right. Right. And then the second one, you know, God, let me, God, God. Yeah, God and let me get into a fight. Who wins? True right? question. Lemmy is God. Right? <laughs> and, okay, Lemmy's appearance? Right. Mind blown. He was the high school newspaper, or the, the high school yearbook editor. So. Right? Yeah. Which just, scream, which just screams geek all the way through. I will say that this movie is actually infinitely quotable. There, there's a lot of parts of the script where it's like, yeah, yeah, you could put a lot of these little script nuggets on a t-shirt you know the whole let me as god thing that's that's just iconic now like that that is that is literally you know and god bless let me you know we miss let me we miss motorhead but you know like there's a lot of quotable things there was one line that really kind of stuck out for me and i want to read it verbatim here it says i'm average and screwed up enough that i might just write a song that will live forever and then it's all going to be worth it that is literally the mantra I think of every band out there trying it, right? You know, average and screwed up enough that I might just write a song that will live forever and then it's all going to be worth it. You know, anyone who's you know, put a, who's put a song to tape or CD and, you know, the, it's true. If you're in an original band, all you want to do is those songs that you toiled over and wrote and recorded you want someone to listen to them. You know, the whole plot of this movie is based around the dream of, you know, six strings in the truth, right? Six strings in the truth. Write something that will, you know, one song can change your life. One song can change your life only if people hear it. Right. So that that the whole plot of the movie is based on a very simple premise and a whole lot of bad ideas along the way. But it makes it that much more fun. Well, exactly. And I'm so glad that you had mentioned the bad ideas along the way, because I just have to give a nod to um, Anthrax's uh, cover of the 87 Smiths um, London. And what <laughs> the, the lyrics of the song is, do you think that you made the right decision this time? <laughs> nope. When this entire movie is based on bad decisions and things going horribly wrong, um, plans going awry, um, they had a simple, a simple request. They had a simple um, goal. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to have their... Um, their single heard and and they wanted a record deal they wanted to you know mm-hmm. get out there and and the audience to listen um and yeah it was it was just a, let, a series of unfortunate events after that let this be a lesson to anyone who knows anyone who's trying to write original music listen to what they're doing or they're going to make some bad choices and start taking hostages. That's pretty much <laughs> what's going to happen. If you know anyone who's, who's not having their music heard, but I mean, I think as far as the, you know, the plot and whatnot, I think it was really, really smart to have everything happen primarily in one location. You know, it simplified the story. It simplified everything that happened and it made the movie a lot easier to digest the fact that it wasn't some big, you know, everyone's all over the place. Every, you know, all, all of LA, you know, they kept it tight. They kept it tight. They kept it, kept it centralized. And when you think about some of the movies around that time, the first one that comes to mind is Empire Records. You know, again, around that same, you know, grunge alternative feel, um, primarily taking place at Empire Records, or even Clerks. Now, when you think about Clerks, primarily it takes place at the Quickie Stop, right? No, the Quick Stop, not the Quickie Stop. I'm, I'm getting my Simpsons and Kevin Smith kind of mixed up here. But no, it happens primarily at the Quick Stop. It's a very, very self-contained comedy that is easy to kind of get around. Because yes, you can think, it, it makes the entire 
hostage situation and everything that happens, you know, understandable in the night. True. And can we also give a shout to um, the set dressing? Um, there were so many hidden gems. If oh, you God, watch, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I know that it took place in a radio station, but if you uh, if you watch posters, certain scenes, yeah. there's, yeah, exactly. There, um, There's, I mean, there's so many different bands, but most notably, did you notice as an Anthrax fan, the little hidden Easter egg? On the magazine, on yeah. The, yeah, on the, the magazine, the, the Anthra- 93. Anthrax actually on the cover. And cover. that's the thing too, like this, this is John Bush era Anthrax. This isn't Joey Belladonna era. This is, you know, 1994, we're, we're talking like Sound of White Noise. Like, this, so this is, you know, Anthrax, if, if you're into Anthrax, which by the way, full plug, if you go to major mixtape, I, you know, I get interviewed someone from a Scottish anthrax band and then go listen to playlist wars where I actually get to talk with Brian and Gomez on that show. And we pick our favorite anthrax songs, you know, shelf, self, shameless self promotion at its best. But you know, that sound of white noise era for anthrax was, was almost at their, uh, it's post bring the noise yet still riding the, the, the popularity, bring the noise MTV attention towards that headbangers ball era. You know, there's a lot in that radio station and you could, you could almost pull a ready player one and start pausing in different scenes and go, Oh, there's an offspring poster and there's this poster and there's that, that spinal the, tap spinal. Exactly. Well, I think that's probably and because of Michael McKean, the obituary right? sticker mm-hmm. from their van. Um, but not only that, but the, um, the scenes shot at the whiskey. Which, yeah. (laughs) With White Zombie playing on the stage. Like, so, yeah, they pretty much kept it tight. But then I love, too, that the Whiskey A Go Go, A, um, iconic. So iconic um, to the LA scene. Not only that, but it was also Lemmy's favorite haunt. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like, it's, it's just so perfectly. Uh, tied together. I think I, it's actually. I think Le- Lemmy's was the rainbow. Lemmy loved the rainbow. Whiskey a Gogo was very much, um, yeah. Whiskey a Gogo was was where Motley Crue got big. Whiskey a Gogo was where like Metallica, I think, played, played one of their, you know, one of their earliest shows as far as you know, you know, getting out there. The rainbow oh, was very. Right. The rainbow was Lemmy. The Whiskey a Gogo was pretty much everybody else. You're right. right. My bad. That's it, okay. It was the um, the Motley Crue. Um, but also, I know that you had mentioned the writing on this. Mm-hmm. And I did just want to point out the, the connection between... So, Rich Wilkes, or Wilkes. Probably Wilkes. Okay. Um, he also, uh, aside from being the writer on Triple um, X and Bulletproof 2, which was another Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> um, The Dirt... The Motley Crew. Okay. Yeah. So there's definitely, I think, that real connection. Um, that Sunset Strip kind of livid experience. Yeah. Right. Right. I do wonder if they if they made that movie um, around the time of Saints of Los Angeles, you know, the Motley Crew album. Which uh, it's 2019 for the Dirt. Okay, but before that though, and I think this was. Oh, I can't remember what year Saints of Los Angeles came out, but there's a song on that album called Down at the Whiskey. So I wonder if, you know, whether they make that album around the same time as Saints of Los Angeles comes out. I wonder if it's Motley Crue on that stage playing that song, which would have been kind of cool. Um, I think, too, um, it uh, it actually should have been or would have been Cannibal Corpse as the live act instead of White Zombie. But, and but, I but think- they were an Ace Ventura pet detective, which is why they weren't in. But I've got a list here of the bands that that turned it down including testament and metallica like that's that's huge um and yes so saints of los angeles was 2008 so you know if airheads was made around that time a you know they're not making seattle jokes because seattle's long gone um but yeah I, i still think motley Crue would play that song but yeah the fact that metallica which i understand I understand Metallica turning that down because we're talking 1994, you know, we're, you know, on the heels of the Black Album. Like Metallica is freaking huge at this point. I think after two and a half years of touring on the Black Album, they just wanted to rest. 
you know, and, you know, get ready to make the next album. But Testament was, was one that kind of stuck out to me because of course, um, Testament's drummer at the time, if I remember correctly, was John Tempestra who would actually go on to play with white zombie, you know, before white zombie broke up and then Rob zombie went solo. So, you know, all the musical connections there, but yeah, it was, it did surprise me that Testament was, was, in, you know, in consideration, the cannibal corpse thing, the fact that apparently cannibal corpse was like the producer's favorite band, you know, I'll admit I'm not a cannibal corpse fan. I've never actually listened to them. I don't dislike them because I just never really listened to them. But you know, the fact that, you know, because of freaking Ace Venture or cannibal corpse didn't get to be an airheads, Probably good on Cannibal Corpse. I think they I think they chose the better movie to be in because of course Ace Ventura Pet Detective was huge and Airheads is being talked about on this show. So I think that was a blessing in disguise on both parts. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, one question that I had though, and I watched the movie twice to prepare for this. Um, but Tom Araya, the uh bassist of Slayer, mm-hmm. was credited or listed on airheads yet i am not sure of the connection i'd have to go back and take a look i really would um yeah that that that's that one's news to me and i'm not quite sure why it's there but since we're talking music we gotta talk the soundtrack here you know and as every good 90s movies at the time good soundtracks were like the 90s was the era of the soundtrack. Let's be honest, right? I mentioned Empire Records. And then you got singles, right? And then you had, um, like, so many good, like, you, you could list. The Tank Girl soundtrack was was phenomenal. There were so many good 90s era soundtracks. The Last Action Hero, horrible movie. Horrible movie. We'll probably talk about that movie eventually at some point. But horrible movie, phenomenal soundtrack. The Adventures of Ford Fairlane with freaking Andrew Dice Clay. Horrible movie. Great soundtrack. Like, there's a lot of great soundtracks out there. This is one of those soundtracks where it's, it's a good soundtrack. And, yeah, the movie's not that bad either. Uh, but let, let's go through some of the you know, very, 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 very 90s references on this soundtrack here. You got four non-blondes on there. You know, actually covering Van Halen. You got House of Pain. You got White Zombie, Anthrax, Candlebox, Primus. I mean, Anthrax and Candlebox, that's two of my favorite bands of all time right there to begin with. You know, shout out to Anthrax and Candlebox. But, you know, again, Four Non Blondes, House of Pain, Primus, like these are 90s staples. These were the bands that really helped make the 90s the phenomenal decade of music that it was. And the soundtrack, the score itself... Take it or leave it. But the soundtrack, and that and again, that, that's just so 90s to have a good rock soundtrack accompanying the movie. You know, aside from um, Born to Raise Hell, which I thought was brilliant, the usage of it, um, but you had mentioned Take It or Leave the, the score. I thought that that was a real driving part. Like, it was really notable, and I thought that it was very clever and very well used. Um, just the, the kind of the background um, transitioning from one scene to another, like, it it added a little something, and it was definitely noticeable. I, you know what? You mentioned the Motorhead song, Born to Raise Hell, and it was a re-record of, you know, Motorhead's original recording of it. Ice-T and... Uh, With Ice-T and Whitfield Crane, Crane from Ugly Kid Joe. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a fan of this version of the song. Like, as as cool as it is to have Ice-T and Whitfield Crane from Ugly Kid Joe up there with Lemmy doing Born to Race Hell, I preferred the original, as found on Motorhead's Bastards CD. It First of all, Motorhead's Bastards CD, pound for pound, song for song, one of Motorhead's best front-to-back albums. Personal opinion... You know, go ahead and at me on this one. I'll stand by that CD. Absolutely. But, but there was just something about the re-record with the guest appearances. I liked the song to begin with. You didn't need to make it any better. 
You know, you got Lemmy up there. You don't need it anymore. But I get that putting, because, you know, again, 1994, Ugly Kid Joe is all over the place, right? You think about, I, I hate everything about you. And then, you know, they had, um, uh, what was the cover that they did? Cats in the Cradle. Oh, okay, yes. Cats in the Cradle. Like, they were MTV Gold at that point in time. And Ice-T is just freaking Ice-T, right? Ice-T, like, you don't even have to, like, point to anything. Just Ice-T is just cool as shit, right? Pun fully intended. Ice-T is cool as shit. But Ugly Kid Joe at the time were huge. And to have them on the soundtrack with Lemmy, I get it. I just prefer the original. Yeah, I know. It's a bold statement. No, you know bold what? Statement. I I mean, so Star Wars over Masters of the, or Masters of the Universe over Star Wars, you know, kind of bold statement, but <laughs> <laughs> I approve of the I'm message. I'm never letting you go that 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 no. That never letting that go. Well, I'm back on the mic, so you must forgive me. <laughs> Cuz you want to be heard. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be heard. Rock and roll. But what? It, it is one of those soundtracks that, you know, if you're looking for good tunes, go ahead, pick it up. Like it's 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 worthy of having in your collection. It's actually one of those CDs I wish I had in my collection. Like it, when you point to the '90s soundtracks, yes, singles comes up. Last Action Hero comes up. Empire Records comes up. Um, so many good '90s soundtracks pop up. This isn't the first one that comes to mind, but if you get your hands on it, you're never letting it go. I want to talk though. I want to talk real. Some real talk here. Can we talk about the physics-defying helicopter that's carrying an entire stage <laughs> as it flies in? Not only that, but, you know, complete with drum set and rig and yeah. everything preset. Like, I know what it takes to put a stage up. <laughs> You've never done it from the air before. I've never. I've, no, no. First of all, Who's got a stage ready to go that fast that can be flown in by a helicopter? One helicopter. One helicopter. One hour and 34 minutes. This movie was one hour, 34 minutes. Somewhere around the hour mark, they decided, oh, no, we uh, like we need to get the stage. Like, what do they do? Like, like fly down to Burbank, say, Jay Leno's not going to need the stage. Let's just pick it up and bring it over to, to Nakatomi Plaza. Like, seriously? <laughs> um, I get it. You know. For time's sake, they needed to 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 do this, but it's just one of those moments where you sit there and go, "Huh, well, that's impossible." <laughs> like the the rigging alone would collapse in on itself. <laughs> you you are endangering the lives of Los Angeles, you know, Los Angelinos everywhere by doing your best to try the impossible with one helicopter and a ready to rock stage. It's not happening. It's way over the top. Funny as hell, but... I think there's a whole (laughs) lot of, you know, you have to suspend a whole lot of disbelief to follow this movie. I mean, first of all, (laughs) a band walking into a radio station um, to have their single heard. And like I said, the fact that they would only have a master and then one cassette copy in existence of their song. I, I will argue that one. I will argue that one. Is it real? It is. You would be surprised how many original bands out there no longer have the masters of their albums. I, We've I, been I, to I, L.A. and Venice Beach, <laughs> and there are people on every street corner handing out their CD singles. Okay, but that's that CD where you can have the... We're talking 1994, like... First of all, it was recorded on reel to reel, so I can just imagine the crappy little studio that the Lone Rangers actually recorded their song in, and it's like one of those dinky little reel to reels. It's not even like the full twenty-four track master. We're talking like you know, we're, it's almost we're, like the three-quarter version. Oh, good, yeah, but it was, it was so thin. Like you're not getting twenty-four tracks on that album. That's literally, it literally looks like they they had a reel to reel machine in their garage. And they stuck one microphone in the middle of the room, and that's how they recorded their demo. Which, if that's the case, that is one damn good microphone, because it sounded pretty damn good when they actually got to play it a little bit. But, but, um, yeah, 
there's something about like that age and bands not having the masters of the albums that they made. It it is actually a thing. I'm not surprised, especially when you consider like how how down on their luck, you know, how, you know, you've got your base is working at a toy store and bringing home all the defective toys or at least to get rid of toys. You've got, you know, Pip the pool man, you know, (laughs) who is also apparently Pip the porno star because he can pretty much pick up anybody. Um, And then you've got, you know, Chaz, you know, the D and D playing, you know, Chester, who's not working and all he's doing is like, you know, trying to sneak into record companies to get his music heard. I'm not surprised that they had, they only had like, you know, one cassette and like one reel to reel of the song. It's the rock and roll life. But again, if they, in reality, if they want to play shows and they want to build uh, an audience and a following, they're going to need to make more than one cassette copy. They might need to, but you know, Given the uh, the combined IQ of a carrot between the three of the characters, <laughs> I'm not surprised. And maybe some T-shirts and some some swag as well. Which, of course, their T-shirts would literally be like a white T-shirt with the Lone Ranger's handwritten on it. That's pretty <laughs> much what their merch would probably be at the time. Um, okay, it's time. It's time to name our MVPs. So, Carrie, I hand the hand the conch over to you here. Who is your MVP of 1994's Airheads? <laughs> Butt Munch. Oh, God. Beavis and Butthead, you have completely overlooked the fact that Mike Judd made, placed a phone call uh, to the radio station and Beavis and Butthead made an appearance. And what I was desperately trying to find out, and, you know, maybe your listeners can, if they know, if they've, they've, found proof to this but i want to know if the other side of this phone call actually made an appearance in season four or five which came out around the same time you do realize you're now asking the our dear listeners you know all three of them to you know <laughs> to, i want to, to know okay <laughs> inquiring so, so, minds so so dear internet hold on dear internet it would be a great help if you would sit down and watch the entirety of the beavis and butthead filmography so you could answer this question for us says sincerely signed it's not that bad (laughs) that's not (laughs) i'm not asking for the whole season no no, no, gotta watch the whole thing roughly around you know um when did it come out april or uh let me take a look at my notes here at my handy dandy notes i did mention i wasn't paying attention i completely forgot that i mentioned it but i've got it written down here uh august august it was august of 1994 Yes. So, whatever, um, wherever that falls in in line with, probably I would think at that point, the, season the be- five. The Beavis and Butthead verse. Yes. <laughs> I want to know. I tried to find it on my own, and I I came up short. <sighs> Fuddle down, will you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do the bungholio because, you know, it's late at night, and I don't want to wake anybody up. But, okay, so aside from Beavis and Butthead, who are your MVPs of, of, of Airhead? Okay, um, Chaz's uh, batshit crazy girlfriend, Kayla. <laughs> Man, that chick can throw a punch. And a Respect. chair. And, and, and. And a chair. And, uh, yeah. I mean, um, it, it, watching the dynamic in their relationship, uh, it made everything make so much sense. You know, poor uh, Brendan Fraser's character, Chaz, he, like, I, I feel for him. I feel really bad for him. Uh, see, you know, it's almost like I wanted to see him hook up with Christina Applegate because that would have been safer. It would have been safer. Yeah. I I will point out that to that point, had this film come out around the same time as How I Met Your Mother, then Chaz could have leaned on the Barney Stinson, you know, hot crazy scale. <laughs> right there's there's that graph right so you know you know the, the 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 character's hotness is directly equated to the to their batshit craziness and yeah no she really was perfect though for the role <laughs> oh and, my god and that's the thing like you know clearly they had christina applegate in mind they didn't get christina applegate they got the next best thing and she did she owned that role she gave it she gave kayla the the manicness that she needed 
She had the perfect hair for it too. Oh, the '80s rocker hair, like I know this, it was in this, the '90s. The but Sunset Strip hair, the, very yes. much so. Yes, yes. I, I, you know what? As cool as good as she was in that role, she was not my MVP. For that, I got a tie, and it's Brendan Fraser, and it's Steve Buscemi. Oh yes, and, and I don't think Buscemi, you know. Buscemi's a very, very good actor, and he gets thrown into a lot of very serious roles, but he also gets thrown into a lot of good comedic roles, and I don't know if Buscemi gets the credit he deserves for being a very good comedic actor, because he knows when to bring the crazy, he knows when to bring the silly, he knows when to bring the absurd. Buscemi is an actor, you know, he does, he, he deserves a lot of credit and Brendan Fraser like you have to you have to remember that this is pre-mummy Brendan Fraser right this isn't you know Brendan Fraser at peak Brendan Fraser this is still on the come up as far as the career goes and there's just something so likable about Chaz in all of Chaz's very wrongness there is something right there and i don't think you get that kind of connection with uh, this character who's just dumb as you know smart like hammer oh pip oh no no not pip pip was adam sandler but Chaz. you know actually everyone in the band you know (laughs) everyone in the band is smart like hammer at this point but but i don't think the audience connects with Chaz if it's not for an actor like Brendan Fraser to be able to, you know, bring just a just a humble sense of of hope. Because that that's Chaz is hope. Chaz is, you know, everyone's dream manifested into this long-haired, leather jacket wearing idiot who's got a hot sauce filled toy Uzi taking hostages just to be heard. There's a strange hope in that, and if it's not Brendan Fraser in that role, the movie isn't as good as it is. But now I'm thinking back to when the Uzis came out of the bag, right? Like, wasn't it, it was Buscemi. Buscemi that led the charge on that? I think, you know, had Chaz had the conviction to be more of a leader, mm-hmm. that I think this movie wouldn't have nearly gone as awry as it did and yeah and i really like the thing is chaz isn't crazy he's not chaz isn't crazy chaz has got a plan right rex is cray he has a goal he has no plan you're right he doesn't know how to get there i stand corrected he has an idea of where he wants to get to. We're arguing semantics on who's crazier. But no plan to how to how to get there. But but it's true. Rex yeah. Rex is a, a few screws loose, right? Rex is the one that needs to pull out the Uzi. Chaz is Chaz is every musician who's ever put something out there and is feeling it because no one seems to pay attention to something that he puts his whole heart into. He's so likable. Oh. However, the scene where he goes out to um, not confront, but he goes out to speak with uh, the the cop, the um, um, Ernie Hudson, yeah, O'Malley. Yeah, right. Um, so he goes outside and he's chatting with him, and then proceeds to jump on top of. I don't know, a uh, a bench or whatever it was that he jumped on, on top of and, you know, riled up the crowd. In reality, that would get him shot. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> that was yeah, pretty much. <laughs> maybe not the best thought out plan. And you can tell that he is very. Um, but to the same token as well. He acts without he's, thinking. He's feeding off people finally paying attention. People finally mm-hmm. listening to him. For someone who just wants to be heard. You know, and again, there's just something infinitely likable about Brendan Fraser. There oh, is. Yeah. Any role Brendan Fraser takes, even when, you know, he's playing a character you're not supposed to like, there's still something infinitely likable about Brendan Fraser. And side note, I've been reading actually a lot of relevant or recent uh, articles about, you know, the internet 
hating on Brendan Fraser because he's been posting. Well, it's because the internet sucks. Pictures. <laughs> you know what? Let's get over it. It's, you know, post-COVID and everyone's been in lockdown for almost two years. And, and, but the, like, and that's the give thing. Give the guy like, a break. Exactly. First of all, the internet sucks. Leave the, the Brendan Fraser and hardcore. Britney Spears alone. The only time the internet's going to be good is if they actually watch every Beavis and Butthead episode to, to answer your question. But, you know, <laughs> um, but Brendan Fraser, again, like, it just comes across as the nicest guy and like like I said this movie doesn't work if Brendan Fraser isn't as as likable as he is so kudos to Brendan Fraser and Steve Buscemi for you know being my MVPs of airheads so hindsight with all of this is airheads not that bad oh my god it's the greatest movie I think um from that Oh, that's a that's a big that, statement. That, that, but there's a bold statement. It, <laughs> <laughs> it is so absolutely perfect um, for the genre, for the time, the music, um, the characters, the the actors in the movie. Mm-hmm. I love this movie, and I think that it is not just not that bad, but it is. A freaking amazing movie. So the critics are to this wrong, day. and the rest of the audience need to catch up because half the people who are right, half the people we need to go back, rewatch it, and appreciate everything that's in there. Carrie, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Uh, you do realize next time I get to pick the movie. Thank you for having me back, <laughs> even after my my Star Wars blunder. Uh, the, the, not blunder, just opinion. Right, exactly. A completely wrong opinion, but <laughs> but an opinion nevertheless. Someone on the internet is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's my wife. <laughs> okay, and to the listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Now, here's the deal. We want to know what movies you think we should be talking about. So, if you think there's a movie that is unfairly maligned, or if you think there's a movie that, that, that there's no way in hell that we can watch it and find something good to say about it, and you just want to torment us and make us watch the movie, we're good either way. Just let us know. So, hit us up on Twitter, at NotThatBadCast. Toss the movie out there. We'll watch it. We'll review it. We'll find only the good things. And then we'll put it, we'll make a show about it. So, until next time, I'm Jason. Thank you so much, Carrie. This is It's Not That Bad. So enjoy the movies. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.